Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 219 Before we talk about Vladimir Putin's speech, here are the other important updates from Ukraine today. At least 23 people were killed and 28 wounded in a Russian missile strike that hit a convoy of civilian vehicles in the outskirts of the southern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia, the regional governor said. Police and emergency workers rushed to the scene of the missile strike, the impact of which threw chunks of dirt into the air and sprayed the vehicles with shrapnel. The windows of the vehicles, mostly cars and three vans, were completely blown out. So far, 23 dead and 28 wounded, all civilians. Oleksandr Staruk, the Zaporizhia regional governor, wrote on the app Telegram. In the east, a Ukrainian military operation is underway to encircle Russian forces in the area of the eastern stronghold of Liman. A military spokesman said that they had all the logistic routes into the area under fire control. Away from Ukraine, Uzbekistan has no plans to deport Russians who are fleeing en masse to Central Asia to evade conscription amid Moscow's military campaign in Ukraine, the Tashkent government said on Friday. Before we talk to Kristaps, I caught up with Natalia Vasilyeva, the Telegraph's Russia correspondent, who was watching Vladimir Putin's speech to hundreds of Russia's top politicians in the Kremlin this afternoon. What was quite stunning about his speech is that about two-thirds of it was not about Ukraine or the annexation, which is quite a landmark event, but about his grievances in, in the West. So in a way, he was trying to explain why he was he was forced to do it. 
Um, and that happens after he spent about 10 minutes talking about historic, uh, historic Russian lands, about how annexing parts of southern and eastern Ukraine was the right thing to do after what he said was uh, the will of the people and the choice of the people show that what local authorities call referendum, that's something that he said he cannot ignore. And from the reaction of the crowd, did you learn anything? I mean, who was there? Who was listening? And did they look particularly thrilled with what they were hearing? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, um, I've been trying to remember when was the last time that we saw all uh, top Russian officials, everyone from the government, both chambers of parliament, all regional lead leaders in one place. That's the prob- That's probably the first thing we're seeing everyone um, in one place since uh, the COVID pan- pandemic. So the idea of bringing all of those officials together for Putin was to show a um, to give a show of force and to say to show that his decision to annex um, those parts of Ukraine was not his own idea. That the entire Russian establishment was in on it. That they have um, uh, that Putin has their approval and that they overwhelmingly supported it. And we did see. Uh, several rounds of applause uh, for Putin. At the same time, before the speech started, he was late about, he was about 15 minutes late. Um, it was quite interesting to see the audience and, and how the uh, live feed so somehow sometimes zoom in on one or two officials. And you can see that the mood wasn't exactly jubilant. That's, I saw a lot of um, uh, really tense expressions on people's faces, and it's it was very hard to find someone who looked genu- genuinely at ease, and uh, who looked like they this is what they wanted, and this was a big day for them. What do you make of the gap between Putin's announcement of the official annexation of the four regions, Kherson, Zaporizhia, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, with the fact that actually on the ground there's still a lot of fighting, Russia doesn't control quite a lot of some of these regions? Yes, that's a very good point. And um, uh, in a way, uh, today's annexation is a response to uh, Russia's losses on the ground because Russia has been losing... Um, a lot of its previous gains in the past couple of weeks. So for Putin, the annexation and making it public and um, handing it to the Russian public on a silver platter, it allowed him to show that Russia hasn't been losing its men in Ukraine for in vain, that um, whatever news Russians may be getting about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, we still made gains uh, in Ukraine and we're now going to solidify it. We're going to see less stamp of approval on that and say, you know, this is our land and it belongs to us. And as, as he put it, he said, this choice was made. This is not under discussion. Those um, areas and citizens who live there, they are, quote, with Russia forever. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of this this section that he spent quite a lot of the speech not actually talking about Ukraine, but about, about the West and about all sorts of diverse and slightly tangential social issues. Um, for, for our listeners who don't follow Putin's speeches too closely, is this normal for him? Is d- 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 How does this come across to you? Do, you? do you think that he's moving further away from the Putin of two years ago? or How, how do you read it? Uh, this is sadly absolutely normal. This is exactly the same rhetoric we heard in Putin's annexation speech in 2014 when uh, um, Russia um, sort of um, put its uh, stamp on the illegal annexation of Crimea. Um, uh, during that speech, Putin also listed a number of grievances and it wasn't his way of explaining 
the annexation of Crimea saying that Russia was under threat and doing the land grab was the, was the thing to protect Russia. Um, obviously, um, if, if you look at what Putin said this afternoon, it can, um, um, it can easily be called his most anti-Western speech. It, it definitely falls in line of what he's been saying before. But in um, recent years, or especially before the Crimean annexation, um, these were just words. And this was the rhetoric which won Putin votes, which uh, a lot of Russians supported and, 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 and backed. Uh, this time, talking about the West and things like liberal values or um, uh, gender rights, this time all of that stuff allows him to show to Russians that we're not just fighting for a piece of land in another country, but we're fighting, as he put it, for Russia's survival and for the preservation of Russia's traditional values and the way of life. Something uh, our associate editor Dominic Nichols has been saying recently is that the recent Ukrainian successes on the battlefield have allowed the Ukrainians to take the initiative and gain the momentum in this conflict and that they are the ones on the ground dictating the pace and deciding what to do. Do you see today as Putin's attempt to, to regain the initiative? And, and if so, do you think he'll succeed? Uh, it was definitely his uh, his step on a chessboard of, of the warfare, so to speak. And uh, it was very interesting to watch uh, the leaders of Zaporozhye and Kherson, the regions which are, um, the, the Russia-controlled parts of those regions, which are under increased uh, Ukrainian attacks. It, would, it was very interesting to see how uncomfortable they look, how they, you know, dart their eyes here and there. And a lot of them looked as they were at ill ease. And obviously for them, it was a moment of, of support from Putin that he, that he needed. It was a symbolic gesture because we still don't know what exactly Russia annexed. Uh, because just, just about an hour ago, when reporters asked Putin's spokesman about the borders of Saporizhia and Kherson and, and Russia controls uh, just parts of those regions, he was not able to say if Russia was formally annexed those regions entirely, as in uh, within the, the regional borders of Ukraine, or they were annexing parts which were currently under Russian control. So th this, is a sim this is obviously a symbolic gesture, uh, sort of as a more, um, uh, try attempt to um, uh, boost morale in those areas and maybe boost morale of Russian soldiers, but it d definitely doesn't change the situation on the ground. Did anything surprise you about the speech? D did you hear anything that we maybe weren't expecting? Hmm. What surprised me was not what he said, but what he didn't say. I think the overwhelming expectation was uh, for him to make some kind of statements about Russia's nuclear arsenal and how Russia was poised to use all its all of uh, means at its disposal to protect Russian territories. And by annexing those parts of Ukraine, Russia, in its own eyes, makes it their own land. So... In theory, it would allow it to use all sorts of weapons, including nuclear weapons, if those areas are under attack, saying that our land is being attacked, we have to respond. So Putin uh, made no mention of nuclear weapons at all, apart from the, the uh, point where he spoke about, where he gave this little history lecture, and he spoke about American colonialism and how Americans dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Apart from that, he made no mention of Russian nuclear arsenal and no 
he made no threats about uh, a potential Russian nuclear response. What What's coming next? You mentioned Putin is now off to uh, to a rally. How, how do the next few days look for you? Yeah, uh, Putin is off is off to the uh, to the major uh, rally. Obviously, it's it's another symbolic moment. He wants to rally support. He wants to he wants to produce a colorful picture for state TV so that viewers at home, wherever they are, can see cheering crowds. And maybe if the viewers are against the war or having doubts, or maybe they're scared about mobilization and the prospect of their sons getting called up, they can see the scenes of jubilation and it would give them idea that, you know, probably a lot of people support Putin while we don't. Um, in terms of what happens next, um, this annexation is going to be rubber stamped all the way in, in recent days. Uh, it will have to pass through uh, both chambers of Russian parliament and the constitutional court for um, ratification. But it's, it, it's basically a formality at this point. And after that, once it's formally part of Russia in the Kremlin's eyes, I think it's very important to see, uh, to watch developments on the ground and how Russia will be reacting to the Ukrainian counteroffensive on the territory that Russia now regards as its own. Natalia Vasilieva, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I'm joined by Kristaps Andresens, Latvian journalist and podcast host of the Eastern Border podcast. Kristaps, thank you so much for your time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where you are now and what you've been up to? Oh, uh, hi, everyone. I hope my sound is... Fine. I am in an internet cafe here in Kiev. That was the only place I could find a spot to sit down right now, which wasn't too loud. Um, I'm a journalist from Latvia. I've been here previously in the early September when we talked about um, Soviet monuments in Latvia. I've been in the front lines in Kherson, in Mikolaev, uh, yeah, for, for a few days. We rode a tank. We got shelled by artillery covered the events there on the southern front of the Ukrainian war. And um, could you just give us your broad impressions of of the front lines and life there as they stand at the moment, before we go into more depth and ask you about some of these these individual places? Well, in one sense, sense it's kind of more characterized by the the response that was given to me by the governor of the Nikolaev region, Mr. Kim, who's a Korean-Ukrainian. And he stated that everyone has stopped worrying to such a degree that it's even a bit dangerous for their own for their own security. The situation being is that kids go play around uh, in, in like playgrounds and everything, yet well, they also kind of ignore air raid alarms. And there's a lot of issues of water and everything, but people are optimistic. And even even in the villages near the front, there's still some life there. People are farming. Kids are playing around. Everyone seems to be all hopeful and that he will kind of adjusted to this war, although you have to say that it might not be a good thing when people have to get, get used to being in a war zone constantly. So when did you arrive in Ukraine and where did you go first? Well, this is my third time here. I, I had been here uh, in the very early days of the war. I went through with people get, getting refugees in from the Polish border. Then I was, the second time I was here, I was in Bucha and Irping. And this time I arrived in Kiev and then with that ran, there was some help from local guys who organized help journalists went to Mikolaev. But my first thing here was meeting the Belarusian soldiers who, fight, who are against Lukashenko. The, they call it, I think it's a company, Belarusian company or something like that. Uh, they, have, they have two brigades in them. I interviewed their leader, known by the nickname of Kit. He's very famous. 
for for being anti Lukashenko, and I had an interview with them, and I'll be I'll be writing about that very soon because really haven't had the time to sit down and actually process all the material that I've gathered in the last few days. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so let's talk about these Belarusians then. For, for people who don't know, can you give us some background on the company? Where, where are they in Ukraine at the moment? And what were your big takeaways from, from your interview with, with their leader? They, uh, they are the guys that recently, just uh, I think two days ago, got the award for their defense of Bucha. They were doing their best to, to, to stop the Russian advance there. They are people who, after 2020 events in Belarus, escape the country but these are the more militant of them obviously so they came down to ukraine about 20 of them they joined the azov battalion at that point it was a battalion still now it's grown obviously and uh, well they served in the first days of the war with the azovs uh, they were important in the defense of the hostomel airport up there and the news about them spread around and they said that when they came back from their first combat mission there weren't 20 people there were about like 50 people there and now they've grown to a point where they have two brigades, they have vehicles and equipment, and they're right now preparing to do some reconnaissance, reconnaissance missions in the Zaporozhye front, as far as I know. I wasn't given any specifics because obviously that's classified information. And they are people who are now preparing. And as they say, when the war is over, they will probably go back to Belarus and try to throw off Lukashenko's regime. Because the major complaint from the Ukrainians and in general was that in 2020, the Belarusians who are in general seen as somewhat peaceful people, people who are against conflict of all sorts. Um, yeah, they, they didn't have any leadership. They didn't have any people who would be ready to, you know, actually organize the protests and fight back uh, against the, the repressions that Lukashenko was building out there. So these guys are training here, as they say, to after the war ends, first they want to liberate Ukraine, and then they want to go back home and liberate Belarus. And... Currently, there's a lot of conversation around about if Lukashenko will enter the war. And uh, as far as I know, these guys, they said that if that happens, they'll be the ones on the front lines from the Ukrainian side who will talk to the Belarusian soldiers because apparently no soldier in Belarus wants to go fight against Ukraine. However, well, they might have officers who might give them commands. And they're also afraid that Lukashenko might lose all control of his armed forces because, you know, it might be other people from Russia who take command of this. At any rate, well, things are going to be very difficult if uh, Lukashenko actually decides to do something like that. And when you were talking to them, I mean, as you mentioned, they've been fighting since the very early days of the war. Did you get a sense of, of their morale? And, and also, I mean, something, as you know, we talk about a lot on this podcast is, is Western support and equipment and aid and all that sort of thing. Did they talk to you about that at all? What, what did you get a sense of what their equipment is like? You know, what, what do they want allies uh, and, and others to give them? So far, so far right now, I know the conversation is about very specific equipment. They are stocked on regular stuff, but they, um, well, they like communications the same with other tank units of Ukraine that aren't exactly frontline elite troops. They have a lot of cases where they only can communicate like 50 meters between the tanks, the combat vehicles, and then if uh, the distance is further than that, then they would have to exit their vehicles and you know get out of the tank and do communication with hand signals and stuff like that. And for example, the rescue services they are complaining that they lack, for example, some testing stuff for if there's a chemical uh, chemical emergency or something like that. I'm not an expert on these cases, but right now we're talking mostly about specific equipment. And of course, well, via more combat vehicles and, and more 
it's a lot of more, more high-tech stuff. It's, it's not about the basic rifles and, and things like that. The morale is pretty high because, well, they are there since the beginning of the war. Like I said, they're one of the more motivated troops in the Ukrainian armed forces since they are also very against Lukashenko. They were integrated very well with the Azov Battalion, from whom they've since separated because they've grown in size, the Belarusians, that is. And did you get a sense of, um, we, we know, we know f- ordinary Ukrainians often call uh, the Russian troops orcs for, for their violence and disregard for humanitarian law. How, how do the soldiers talk about them or, or think about their enemy? Did you get a sense of that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's approximately the same. They, they uh, use orcs and they use some other terms which are not, uh, which, which are not polite enough to be aired and talked about here. Interestingly enough, the uh, Ukrainian army called the civilians klopci, which I find interesting, because klopets, uh, that's kind of a cabbage roll, you know, when you take mincemeat and stuff it into, into cabbage. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, we, all the journalists there, we were very well armored and everything, but the guys in the front lines, yeah, at least in the tank corps, they don't wear that much body armor if you get into the movement. It's, it's all a bit interesting. Their attitude towards Russians is, well, kind of, kind of too... They're just, I think, I think too chill about this war. Since I spoke with um, one of the men in, in the very front lines in, in Kherson, in Nikolaev, about how he had escaped a burning tank on the 6th of September, very recently, and he just drew like, the whole combat situation uh, for us in the sand with his leg and, and just casually started talking about how, his, how he's been on fire, how his commander has been on fire, how they did the attack and everything, and how he can't wait to go back once again. It's, it's kind of like, this weird attitude, and I think a lot of these these men are going through all this hellish situation, with and, and everything that keeps them going right now is the fact that they have to keep moving. There's going to be a lot of psychological trauma there to kind of understand and deal with once once the going stops, once they have some more time to reflect on all these matters. And that's going to be difficult for them. You mentioned you went down to Mikhailiv. Could you? Uh, give our listeners just a sense of, of what, what's the atmosphere in the streets like. If you could paint, paint a bit of a picture of walking around close to the front lines, what kind of things do you see and what do you hear? First of all, on the day three, you understand that it's no point going to sleep earlier than 1 a.m. at night because explosions are going to happen. They had some really close ones. Uh, we had two rockets striking the city center. One of them was about 200 meters from our hotel and the other one was about 500 meters from, from our hotel, like a couple of blocks away. And they use either Typhoon S rockets or, or, or missiles uh, or the, those S-300 ones. And they've modified them to shoot at air targets, but they're, they're the shrapnel ones. They're the ones that explode a couple of meters above ground and then shred shrapnel everywhere. So it's a daily occurrence. Everything's getting exploded constantly. And uh, every night, every night you can hear the air raid alarms. You can hear the explosions, very loud booms. And as we were staying close to the city center, yeah, that would show a lot. People are just used to this. There is very few houses left that still have their windows there. A lot of houses don't have windows, but the Ukrainians themselves, well, they've been very, they've become very adept at fixing the thing, you know, fixing the damage. Because as we were staying there, we lost water to our hotel. And the very same day, because the pipe was ruptured by an explosion, but the very same day that was fixed, they, um, they have very well organized aid there since. They don't rely on the government to do everything for them. Uh, a lot of community will just come together and try to fix things on their own, if, if, uh, like even before the government gets there. It's, it's a very interesting situation where they have been you know, forced to adapt and fix everything super quickly. 
to allow life continue onwards a bit. Okay, because it's it's interesting to see how like in those burnout buildings, half of the buildings burned out and the windows have been boarded up, but there's still like a pizza place running in that building and it's still working and everyone's still alive for you. You mentioned right at the beginning of this of this interview that you did you say you were you, you've been riding a tank? Uh, is that right? How did that come about? What was it like? Pretty rough, I tell you. That was a T seventy two. It's somewhere there on my Twitter in the videos because we went to, me and Anthony. We went to the very we went to the front lines and there was a, we met artillery people and we spoke with them and got interviews with the operators of the seven 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 vehicles. And from there, we were taken closer to the front to speak with the tank troops. But uh, just so it happened that one of the tanks was uh, driving to, the, to its combat mission. So they just offered to pick us up. And it wasn't like it was very, kind of very close, a couple of kilometers away from, from the front. And they were going there. And yeah, just we, we hopped on, literally hopped on at this tank. And well, we're driven through this. It was a surreal experience because a lot of these tracks that where the tanks go well there's still life there and we're driving on a tank through this field there's like a local farmer who's still working in the field there are cattle there sheep and goats and little kids who just come to you and say slavo krainia while we were driving there it's it's a surreal experience really although a bit dangerous one because our local guide there said that well if the if the russians have the capabilities they know what everything is they know how where we're going, and they don't have drones there, but if they really wanted to, they would probably attempt to shoot at our positions, but thankfully I was just a single tank, and that didn't happen. Although we got lucky then, because uh, we, as, as we left on that day, uh, there was an explosion in, in Nikolaev, uh, again in the center, when two people died and 12 more were wounded by one of those cartridge rounds, those airbursting ones, so, you know, there was a real danger. And it, yeah, we spoke with these people. Uh, the story of, of the tank crew comes from, from there, from those guys who, who drove us uh, near the battle lines. And just speaking about the fighting in the south, um, there's been some speculation that, that given the onset of autumn and colder temperatures, things might start to slow down. What, what's your impression? Is it, is it still incredibly tough, incredibly violent, and, and pretty much 24 hours a day? It's less active because all of that region was a diversity manure. It wasn't the main battle line. It wasn't the counter, counter main direction. So all the people there, they complain about the fact that they haven't been reinforced. They've been there, a lot of them, all seven months without rotation. Only maybe once or twice getting home for like a day or two at best. And it's not there for the Ukrainians. Uh, winter clothing, of course, welcome, but it's south, so it won't be as bad as in more northern directions. But in general, so far, they're, they're super happy that people are donating the winter clothing stuff. Everything else is more or less okay, but... Right now, there's a lot of programs. St. Javelin is doing another drive of charity, which I'm supporting. But the situation on the Russian side with, with the winter clothing, with the medical supplies, with all that, is much, much worse because it's all been stolen due to corruption, basically. One of the big topics, as I'm sure you know, over the past couple of weeks has been the Russia's new mobilization drive. Um, how, how do the Ukrainians see this? Are they... Because I, I, I was I was struck by talking to some Ukrainians how they were, you know, relatively worried. It's a, it's still a, a, a hell of a lot of men coming coming armed with guns towards them, despite all the sort of you know the videos we're seeing of of um, troops you know, sleeping out in the open. Uh, there's been a video yesterday of of Russians deliberately harming themselves to avoid the draft. What, what's the feeling of the troops on the ground? Are they, are they worried by this, or do they just take it in their stride? 
Well, to, to us, the guys in the front, well, they're, they're taking it in stride, but people around who are in reserve or who are uh, in rescue services, of course, they're more worried. It's still more people to deal with. It's still very difficult. It's still quite hard for them. I mean, the troops in the Russian side are under-equipped and, and they're not motivated. And, and recently, well, they, they recently in pro-Russian channels on, on Twitter, they posted brave pictures about Russian winter soldiers which didn't have any winter camo that was like all green still. However, well, people are worried, but they're not panicking. I, I would put it this way. And the soldiers on the ground, well, they try to be optimistic and keep some dark comedy about, well, more fertilizer for the Ukrainian soil. That's one of those running jokes. But um, in general, I didn't see panic. But again, there is this worry because, again, this means that the war will be prolonged. And of course, all the Ukrainians would want to want this war to be over as, as quickly as possible. And they, they understand that it's going to happen via a military victory only, because that's another thing that I spotted here. A deal at this point has become just impossible. So, so you think that no matter what Putin says today, no matter what happens in the, in the annexation speech that's actually going on right now, um, that the Ukrainians will keep on fighting? Yes, of course. They're stubborn people. And um, after Bucha, after Irpin, after everything has happened, there can be no deal. If any offer, any mention of a deal in Ukraine is going to... It's a tenement to political suicide. It is absolutely unpopular. People want to keep fighting. People want to keep going. And as they say, the only thing that keeps them away from victory is the lack, their lack of equipment. And they're happy about the new HIMARS that they're getting. And they're happy about their new vehicles because they like those things. They like metal. They have the manpower. And they have the willingness to fight, definitely. Another another topic that we've been talking a lot about uh, is the rising uh, nuclear tensions. And I've been seeing quite a few Ukrainians I follow and chat to talking about how it's now a subject of conversation again in their offices and in, when they see their friends. Um, did, did you hear much about that at all? Is, is it something that's being talked about? And, and if so, did you see any preparations being made or how are the Ukrainians yeah, thinking about it? Well, people who haven't followed politics are worried. But a lot, of, a lot of people in the military, same as me, aren't exactly as worried about this because I highly doubt that any tactical nuclear weapon will be used. As I, as I mentioned yesterday in another interview, if Putin decides to use nukes, it's London that he'll be nuking with, with strategic nukes as a last step effort. Because, one, Putin always does the thing he denies. He, that's by the KGB handbook, you know. He denied mobilization, he denied the war, he denied that there were Russian soldiers in Crimea. He always denies everything up until the last moment instead of boasting about it. And secondly, even in the most pro-war channels in Russia, the Girkins, the, the Wagner channels, Wagner Group, all those guys who are so hardcore for the war with Ukraine, who are so hardcore for this war that they even call Putin a liberal, right? Even those people are vehemently against the use of nuclear weapons and say that would be a massive mistake for Russia. Since, well, in Putin's propaganda and in their, their own minds, those are the people that basically Ukraine does not exist. They're all Russians here, according to them, right? So Putin, if he would nuke Ukraine with a tactical nuke, would have to explain to his own people why is he nuking Russia that he wants to conquer. Russia, according to him, at least. That would be about, it, it would go down just as well as if, I don't know, um, during some struggles in Britain, British people would just decide to nuke Scotland or something. That's the level of, that's, that's the consequence of Putin's propaganda on its own. 
And a lot of people say that Russia will only use nukes as a purely de deterrent. I, I don't know. I think, and I think that if Putin will use the nukes, that'll happen when, when everything's totally lost for him, and then he might not even hold back, and, and then he might use some strategic ones. But also, I don't think that such an order will be actually pulled through, because people who are in the strategic, uh, strategic missile weaponry there in Russia... Well, they're, they're pretty smart people. A lot, of them are, a lot of them are old school Soviet types. And in the Soviet Union, it was always a massive taboo. You even mentioned the nukes. It was always told to us that it was the Americans and the evil West that would use the nukes, not us, not in the Soviet Union. So that's another massive social taboo. Therefore, you know, if Putin would be constantly denying and publicly stating that he would not use nukes, then I would be worried. But if Putin is just trying to threaten, threaten and intimidate people, I think that should actually be a, a sign of less threat than other laws. Thanks, Chris Stapps. That's, uh, that's, that's, fa that's absolutely fascinating. Can I ask you, just moving away from the nuclear question, um, you, you met up with and interviewed a former US MC. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what he's doing out there in Ukraine? Yes, uh, I met Craig, with a weird spelling of his name. Uh, he used to be a Marine, and now he also served two terms in Iraq, I think, and, and Afghanistan. And... Um, He's here because he was just so tired of looking at injustice being done, and he's one of those people who said that he wants to do something about it. You know, he's, he's a very rough person, obviously, but basically he was always, he, he always said that if something like this would happen, he is an American and as a military person, he, is, he felt like he could do something about it, and he said that he should basically come here. And right now he's all here on his own. He's signed a deal with um, the Ukrainian army. They have like this unit there. They're forming a unit, which is going to be a foreign unit inside the Ukrainian army, because apparently the foreign legion that Ukraine formed was such a new institution that a lot of people had troubles finding their combat units, finding units they could work with. There, there were a lot of organizational issues. So right now the main way how foreign volunteers can join is actually signing a contract with the Ukrainian army, which is what she's doing. He's gathering uh, aid for his unit via GoFundMe because he's here on private funds, which is why it usually stuns me when a lot of people, you know, often in the West speak about Western mercenaries in the same language is applied also in, in Russia sometimes. I find this strange because those people are there, um, they arrive on their own, and, well, he's now happy that finally after this deal, now that he's here after a couple of months, he might be able to actually get some payment, but not, not more than the Ukrainians are getting paid. But that was really interesting meeting somebody from, from all over right here. Is Craig and his story, do you think that's um, representative of foreign fighters in Ukraine? Or is he, or, or is he a bit special from, from being a former soldier? Do you have a sense of what's the makeup of, of the foreigners in Ukraine? Well, they're a bit weird. I do have to say that all those people, mostly veterans, and also some other guys from Twitter, were there. They're... They're not your usual usual folks. They are always always characters. We'll just put it that way. They always have their own own weaknesses and all, all, all mental quirks and opinions about everything. They are well, most likely. I, I feel like they, they are the people who couldn't fit in completely after their own previous service. And a lot of them are really motivated by by helping out Ukraine. But definitely, no matter no matter their motivation, some of them just want to do justice. Some of them couldn't fit in. I know that they're all motivated to help Ukraine and be professional about it. 
And have they have they learned Ukrainian? How, how do the locals sort of treat them? Do, do they see them as just part of their own armed forces? Are they especially thankful? What, what's the attitude towards the foreigners in, in Ukraine? About the same as with the regular armed forces. The language barrier is a problem. They have a translator in their squad because Ukrainian is very different from Russian. Sometimes in the squad they would have maybe one, maybe two people who could speak either Russian or Ukrainian. But in general, the Ukrainians treat them like other soldiers with respect, like with all military units. Sorry. And currently, in Ukraine, military is held in high regard, very much respected. And the same goes for all the foreign soldiers because well, people are sometimes even surprised that, that people will just come from other countries and leave their place to help them out, and they're, they're happy about that. There's a lot of a lot of thankfulness to the West about this. Ukraine really does feel like it's part of EU and they want to show it to everyone. It, like in Kiev right now, it's, the city is very much alive, despite you know the war and everything. And, and yeah, I can, I can feel that, that the Westerners are treated very kindly here. They're not given special privileges, but they're appreciated, certainly. Chris Tapps, you mentioned this is your, I think you said this is your third time in Ukraine since the beginning of the war. Um, from your perspective, what do you think has changed? And, and has there been anything that surprised you about this, this trip? Well, weirdly enough, uh, I had a little surprise, but that, that wasn't because of the war. It was because uh, apparently it's, it's really cool now in Ukrainian food places where they serve burgers and barbecue to give you latex gloves for your teeth. That's a thing that came from Russia uh, with, a, with a Russian rapper, Kimati. Uh, he started that in his own chain, and apparently that's gotten big here. It's now expected for burger places to give you latex gloves, although that's pretty much really bad for the environment, I think. But the surprising thing was, again, how Kiev is very much alive. Since last time I was here, there were checkpoints on every block, basically, and it was crazy. However, now Kiev is very much alive, and Nikolaev, despite all their struggles and all, all that they're going through. Yeah, the city is continuing on like normal because I was extremely scared when during the night missiles struck and they struck nearby. I could hear them, I could feel them, and it's a kind of a very strange and dreadful feeling when uh, you're trying to go to sleep and then you're woken up by booms and car alarms and literally your house just shaking. And these people, they're just, they're just used to it. What surprised me really was their tenacity. And again... Like I said before, the very fact that even on the front lines, there are hardening farmers who still do their field work and field work and everything. The sheer fact that this place does not feel grim, it feels determined, it feels alive, and it feels like everyone here knows what they're fighting for. I, I was pleasantly surprised about that. I completely agree with you on the uh, the rubber gloves for eating burgers. That happened at Kiev, Kiev Food City. It was a complete surprise uh, to me and Anna Wurtzen as well when we had that. Um, yeah, never seen that before. So I totally agree with you there. Um, from your from your trip this time, I mean, what I'm curious to know, having been there on the front lines in the south, do you think there's anything that the we that the media in the west or anywhere really do you think, is there anything that we we miss that that's a big thing in Ukraine or big thing on the front lines in Mykolaiv that that's not being picked up or not being talked about enough? I think it's it's the actually the naval forces because Ukrainians still have some naval capabilities, but the limited ones, but they do missions and we haven't heard about the Ukrainian Navy as much. But I spoke with um, with people from the Navy and yeah, they're still doing things, getting supplies here and there, doing stuff. Yeah, that, that's important. And also... One of the important aspects is that a lot of people look at the maps right now, but they don't understand the sheer scale of, of the river. Like Dnieper itself is huge. So 
especially when you go down south. It's not just something that you can throw a bridge over in one day. So over here, when you look at like all the straits there and everything, the water, there's a lot of water. So when you look at, for example, the bridge that was exploded recently, uh, which, which connected, uh, the, which, was supply, which, you, which was used to supply the troops to Kherson, then, uh, well, you don't understand the scale of the difficulties of getting across that the Russians are experiencing now, once you really see it, and it's hard to see because it's under Russian occupation. That's, that's one thing. It's just that once you get to the river there, it seems, it seems like you've, you've gone to the sea. The sheer scale of things is, is crazy. And also the fact that the fact that Russian army, for example, in this war, uh, they don't have a lot of things that you would expect in the Russian army. You know, people make do with without, without everything happening. I think the biggest surprise here would be about everyday life and that a lot of everyday day-to-day things are done quite differently than in the West because of you know sheer lack of materials and, and things like that. You're, you're heading back to Latvia now, I understand. Um, is there a particular interview or memory or scene that will really stand out for you, that, that, that will be the thing that you think of when, when you get home? Is it, and would you talk up a little bit about that for, for us? Yeah, that was really uh, the mention with the Tang guys, because they had really poor coffee as well, and we had brought some for them. And this being near phone experience, when I also asked them about, aren't you afraid? Have you been used to all these rockets firing and explosions? And they just laughed, and, and they were super happy about this. But uh, that's when the war is more more part. But while I was there, in, in there next to the front lines, in one of the evenings I managed to get an interview from, from Russia, from Dagestan, where the protests are going on. And I think that's going to stay with me as well, because during that interview, I, I had a conversation with, with people about what the Dagestanis want, how the ethnic minorities in Russia are basically oppressed, why is this mobilization hurting them more than it's hurting ethnic Russians and all that. But at the end... At the end there, uh, they, there was a great final question here, which was, well, how, I asked, how do you think, well, whether or not these protests, will they spread into something larger? And the guy from Dagestan responded that um, Russia is Putin, Caucasus is Caucasus, and Moscow is Moscow, other regions are the regions, but Russia is Putin. Because what, what struck me as odd is that in Russia, in many regions, they live locally. They live locally uh, in the sense that people in Moscow don't care about protests in Dagestan because it's a separate region and they feel like basically in another country. Uh, they, they have very little ties with the Moscow government since Moscow government is only, has only brought them repressions and is represented by Putin and all the things that they call well, one giant massive fake. And I contrasted this with how people view everything here in Ukraine, how people help each other, how everything is done locally and people are just you know, people in, in Kherson feel like they have a real connection with Kiev. They, they have something here in Ukraine that Russia misses. They have a real sense of, I don't know, nationhood, of them all being this, from different regions, but being in this one whole country. Meanwhile, in Russia, due to the actions of Putin, we can see that it's, it's much more regionalized. And, you know, if Putin leaves there, there's very few things that can actually keep the whole mess of Russia together. Meanwhile, Ukrainians, they know what they're fighting for again. And, their tenacity and this whole feeling of closeness and commonness. Yeah, that left, left, left a huge impression. Kristaps, is there anything uh, we haven't spoken about uh, that you think is important to mention or that you think our readers should know about? Our listeners even, sorry. <laughs> sorry, no, it's fine. I'm sorry if I sound a bit weird now, which is that I'm, I'm still here and try to find a good spot for this. But um, I'm going back to Latvia right now. I'll be going back here, here to Ukraine, but I'm going back to Latvia because we have elections tomorrow. 
uh, because you know, those are new ones and they are the ones after COVID and after the war started. And currently in Latvia, we have a lot of parties who've just sprung up with dubious finances and everything that uh, are anti-Putin and they're not going to get a lot of votes, but they're there. And there is still a lot of questions about the funding and the Putin's ties to everywhere in Europe. And that's, that's a major issue and there's going to be more elections coming on soon. So I wanted, wanted to mention that everyone should really go and vote and be active in their political circles and maybe, maybe take a look at where, where the funding comes for some of those um, people who are very against, against this Ukraine war because we, we've seen a lot of these things. And uh, secondly, about the whole people who escaped from, who escaped from Russia, I know that there is a humanitarian catastrophe on the Georgian border because no one in Russia really cares about the people who are escaping right now. They don't have any water, they don't have any food, and they're stuck there next to the Georgian, Georgian border with like summer clothing because no one expected to wait there for such a long time. The line there, as far as I know, is about two to three times, even up to five times on some border crossing posts longer than uh, media reports because it doesn't include all the massive lines that are near the checkpoint just before you can even get to the border because there are a lot of armored checkpoints there. So, yeah, Russia with this mobilization, especially as we've seen in Georgia, yeah, has caused a massive catastrophe of their own people in there as well. Just wanted to say this, if you hadn't spoken about this in the show, sorry, I didn't have the time to give you guys a listen, it's been a bit too busy. No, absolutely no worries. Thank you so much. Um, Chris Tapps, can you tell our listeners, th- thank you, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you so much for speaking to us and fitting us into your, your incredible, incredibly busy schedule. Um, you've mentioned an awful lot of interviews you've been doing and reports you've been working on. Where can listeners find them? How can they follow you? Oh, well, uh, here on Twitter, it's Eastern Border, uh, at Eastern underscore Border, or just write up the Eastern Border on any podcast app. You can find me there. Otherwise, I do written media in Latvian, so you're going to have a hard time with that. But I'm writing an article for the Foreign Policy magazine in English about the Belarusian troops. I'm going to be writing on my 12-hour train ride tonight, so I hope to get this out soon. But mostly, yeah, just your favorite podcast app, The Eastern Border. I've been out there, been doing more reporting, and well, I, I hope to have a nice, nice cooperation with, with you in the future as well you know if you have if you want me I'll, i'll be glad to work with you guys ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter claire hubble acast and befaler 
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.